Good morning, New Life. My name is Will. I am one of the pastors here at New Life Press. And if you are uh, joining us for the first time, we are in the middle of a series studying the book of Philippians entitled Joy in the Journey. And one of the reasons that we took time to study this letter is because we wanted the church and everyone, you and I, to be able to see how encountering Jesus can be fulfilling and life-transforming. And when that happens, it pushes you out to be able to serve our Savior in the body of Christ. And perhaps more than any other New Testament letter, in the book of Philippians, we see this partnership between Paul and his beloved church at Philippi, where they encounter Jesus and feel called to Christ, but then they get pushed out to call and call to serve one another. And so we're going to look at this in Philippians chapter 3. And so if you're able, I want to ask you to please stand for the reading of his word. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read a short passage from verse 12 to verse 16. This is God's word. I pray that you be blessed by the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. And this is God's word. You could go ahead and take your seats. One of the encouraging and brilliant things that Paul does in the letter of Philippians is that as he tries to unpack the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus, he tries to tackle it from different perspectives and different analogies, and he's just a good teacher. And so in the verses that we didn't read but the passage that Pastor Paul preached on a couple of weeks ago, Paul unpacks the beauty and the goal and the majesty of the gospel in verses 7 to 11, but he does so sort of as a mathematician, or better yet, he does it more like an accountant. He's saying, look at how great Jesus is, but he tries to communicate it through a general ledger, for those of you who know a little bit about accounting. So for example, we didn't read these verses, but as a reminder, he's talking about the beauty of Jesus, and then in verse 7, he says, whatever gain I had... I counted as a loss for sake of Christ. And then in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so even if you're not an accountant, you can appreciate the way he tries to understand the gospel. He says on his general ledger, On this side is a loss. And I'm going to balance it out with the gain of Jesus. He says, on this side, my achievements, my goals, my aspirations, everything that may be good is counted as a loss if I could gain and credit Jesus. And he's just showing how much better the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And Paul does that as an accountant. But then in our passage here today, he transitions. What we read in verses 12 to 16 very much relates to verses 7 to 11. But Paul puts on a different hat, and he says, I'm going to show you the beauty of Jesus, not as an accountant, but as an athlete. He's going to go from working the general ledger to working a racetrack and running a marathon race. Paul moves from being an accountant to talking like a runner. 
And he basically says, life is like a race. That's the metaphor. Life is like a race. And he wants to give you this perspective on life because he's saying it's not going to be a sprint. It's more like a marathon. And this isn't just for Paul, but it's really peppered throughout the New Testament where life is really understood as a race. There's a beginning, there's a running, and there's an end. You know, so for example, in Hebrews 12.1, the author says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 9.24, to the Corinthian church, he says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run to receive the prize. And then Paul talking to his beloved disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.7, says, I have fought the good fight. So there's a boxing metaphor. There's an MMA metaphor. But he also says, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's a metaphor for life, friends. And what we're going to unpack in Philippians is that this race is not a sprint, but it's a marathon. It's long term. There may be moments in life where you have to sprint. There may be moments where you take a break and a drink of water. But this life that we live is really one of a marathon, and it's a race. And what Paul is trying to give us here today is a perspective on life. But he's not just giving us a bird's eye view. He's actually giving us an astronaut's view where you're in space and you see the entire globe as a little small blue dot. And he wants us to view life in that perspective, a cosmic perspective on life, life understood as a running, as a race, as a prize. I mean, it's clear before we get into the points that it's a race because Paul peppers this idea and theme throughout the verses. So in verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. No, he's pressing on, he's moving forward. Verse 13, he says, forgetting what lies behind because what runner keeps looking at the back, the runner is always looking at the finish line, I strain forward. And then in verse 14, I press on to the goal of the prize. So let's look at this. I'm going to give you an astronaut's view of life according to the Apostle Paul, and we're going to use this metaphor of a race to kind of structure our message, and it's really simple. First, in this race of life, there's a beginning. You know, they say it's really about how you launch off the starting line. There's also a way that you run. And then thirdly, you look at the prize. So what's the starting line? How do you run this exactly? And then what's the prize? So let's look at this. And if you want something a little bit more tangible, what Paul says is, when you begin the race, it makes sense to start off life with humility, a personal ownership of Jesus and humility. And when you run the race, in our second point, the running of it means that you don't look behind you. You sort of forget the past. And then you press on to the, fo- to the finish line. And then we'll look at this prize, which isn't going to be the lottery or fame or prosperity, but it's going to be the upward call of Jesus, this prize that will usurp anything else in this world. So there's a beginning, there's a running, and there's an end. So let's look at the starting line, the beginning of this race. Read with me again verse 12, if you will. It says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus made me his own. Now, when you start the race, there are three three things I want you to look at right here in verse 12. Three things of how to start life well. And what Paul is saying that in the gospel of Jesus, if you apply these three things in the beginning of your life, you will do well in life. He says, first, when you start the race, start with humility. Secondly, realize the start of the race is really one of grace. And then thirdly, the start of the race is a personal ownership of Jesus. 
Now, that's a lot, but we're just going to blaze through this. So let's look at this. How do you start the race? Well, one thing that Paul shows us is that if you begin life, if you start life with humility, then you actually will start life really well. Now, humility is not in there, so where do I get that? Well, it says it in verse 12. It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So right off the bat, the Apostle Paul says, I'm not perfect. Now, keep this in mind. Paul actually, in verses 7 to 11, gave his resume, his credentials, his LinkedIn account, and he's basically saying, there is no one else in this world that has better credentials than me. Now, we, it's a famous passage. He says, I'm the tribe of Benjamin. That means his family lineage is great. His family tree is the best. He has the best last name, the best family. He also had the best schools and best teachers. He had the best accomplishments. He says, no one was more zealous than me. And if the Apostle Paul, who became Christian, was the author of 13 letters of the New Testament, the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher, the greatest pastor, you know, the greatest theologian. And if Paul himself can begin and says, you know, when you start off life, I realize even for myself, greatest resume and the greatest accomplishments, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived yet. He says, I haven't already obtained it, and I'm not perfect. That's the humility of humility. See, when he says there, I have not already obtained this, that this is really referencing verses 10 to 11. This, in verse 12, is talking about the fullness of this relationship with Jesus, to suffer with Christ, to have a relationship with him, all the kingdom blessings. It really is given to us in verses 10 to 11. So when Paul says, I haven't gotten this yet, I'm not perfect, he's talking about verses 10 to 11, which says, that I may know him in the power of the resurrection. He says, I haven't gotten there yet and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, Christ's likeness. He's like, I'm not there yet. That by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is saying, <clears throat> I haven't gotten that yet. And he wrote 13 letters to the New Testament. And he says, I'm not perfect. And the reason that Paul wants to emphasize perfection is because in that church, there were some false teachers, and they were saying, I've reached a level of perfection. You know, there were a group of people called the Judaizers where they're saying, I believe in Jesus, but I also believe in these Jewish laws. And if I follow these Jewish laws of dietary laws and circumcision, I can actually be perfect. And Paul is saying, no, on this side of glory, you'll never be perfect. And there's another group of people in the church called Gnostic dualists, which means they have a separation between your soul and then your body. And he's saying, whatever I do in the body doesn't really matter. All that matters is what I do in my soul. So they're saying, I'm good in my soul because I'm spiritual, but I do all kinds of sins in the body, but it doesn't count, so I'm also perfect. And Paul is saying to the Gnostic, no, that's not true. To the Judaizers, no, that's not true. Look at me. I have not arrived yet. I'm not perfect. You start off with humility. Friends, I don't think I have to tell you that if you could begin every relationship, every job, every perspective on life with this mentality that says, I'm not perfect, and I'm not talking about a self-deprecating perspective or saying, oh, I'm a nobody, no one loves me. No, that's not humility. That's actually equally self-centric as prideful people. But a real humility is a content and a sense of purpose to know that you are God's and that you could begin every relationship and say, 
I'm not perfect. And if you begin life this way, it's not only that Paul says this, but even the world and secular psychologists and sociologists will say your life will be so much better. Your relationships will be better. Your experience will be better. Even in the Harvard Business Review, they say humility actually makes for the greatest leaders. Jim Collins in the five level of leadership says humility is a key characteristic for the CEOs that distinguish those who take the company to the next level and to those who actually don't make it. So everything in this world, both Christian and non-Christian, can validate that humility will make life a little bit better. Even in this study given by Berkeley Cal University, there's a, there's a group there called the Greater Good, and what they want to do is that they have PhDs and health specialists that talk about the different perspectives on science and how you could apply that to humanity and sociology to make life better. The Greater Good. And they wrote this article called How Humility Will Make You the Greatest Person Ever. And that's a large statement. Now remember, it's not a Christian publication. This is just science. It says humility will make you the greatest person ever. And in this article, they just cite really quickly a bunch of studies. But in one part, they say this. Consider what the researchers of this other perspective call the quiet ego, which is basically humility. They're saying, consider what researchers found about the quiet ego, this construct of humility. And their research and their studies suggest that we gain control of our ego through humility, and if we live like this way, we are less likely to act aggressively, manipulate others, express dishonesty, destroy resources. Instead, we take responsibility for our mistakes, we correct our mistakes, we listen to other people's ideas, and keep our abilities and humble perspective that promotes peace and prosperity in society, in the family, and in your life. So not only is it just Paul that says, if you start off the finishing line, the starting, if you go on the starting line with humility, it'll make your life that much happier. Now, the difference is this, is that true humility only comes in the gospel of Jesus, that you are sinful, you're broken, but you're fully loved and forgiven in Jesus Christ. Only the gospel could give you real humility. And if that's the case, then true happiness, true joy, true relationships, thriving in life can only come in the gospel of Jesus and your identity grounded in him. Humility. Even Mahatma Gandhi, you know, who was not a Christian, emphasizes the virtue of humility. He once said, I claim to be a simple individual individual liable to err like any other fellow mortal. I own, however, that I have humility enough to confess my errors and to retrace my steps. And that's sort of low-hanging fruit because everyone references Gandhi in a lot of the philanthropic work and a lot of the good that he's done. But he always, in his own personal writing and thought, cherished humility. That's the first thing. But how else do you start on the finish line? Really quickly. When you start off the finish line, when you go on the starting line in life, when you begin and blow off the starting line, one of the things that Paul says is not only that you begin with humility, but he also says this is a life that begins with grace. There's an ownership. Did you know that, I think it was Elizabeth Elliot who was a missionary, she said the greatest question to ask in life is not who am I? The greatest question to ask in life is whose am I? And what she's getting at is something that you and I have to understand is that even though our sin wants us to live autonomously, all of us live for something greater than ourselves, something outside of ourselves. We are all 
owned by someone. We are all slaves to something. There's something that has controlling influence over our lives. It could be money. It could be power. It could be love. It could be comfort. It could be your children. But there's always a controlling influence of your life. You never really just live for yourself, but somebody owns you. Somebody will dictate your resources and how you spend your time. You're being driven by something that you worship and you idolize. That's why Elizabeth Elliot is correct. The question is not to ask, who am I? The question is to ask, whose am I? And when you begin life off the starting line, Paul in verse 10 says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now, these are strong words. When he says, I press on to make it my own, he says, I seize, I grab, I hold on to Jesus, but only because Jesus has first held on to me. And he says, the only way that you'll make life really work and make life cohere is when you realize that you are owned by Jesus and you give your life to him. You can't be owned by your career. You can't be owned by performance. You can't be owned by popularity. You can't be owned by beauty and your good looks, nor money. All those are good things, but they are never meant to own you, even though, if we're honest, in our sin, our idols, we are worshiping and we are completely owned by these things of the world. But Paul says, you have to be owned by Jesus. Christ has made me his own. That's why I can make him myself. And that's what Paul is trying to say, that if you're owned by Jesus, if you live for him, See, one thing about Christianity that's completely different from every other religion. Now, if you boil down every other religion, every other philosophical system, the one thing that's unique to Christianity is really answering the question, who is the first mover? See, every other religion, every other system, even atheism, agnosticism, on some level what they're saying is that in order to reach happiness, the first mover is you. You have to live a certain way. You have to attain to do something. You have to have a certain morality. Be a good person, be successful, be smart. The first mover is always man. Christianity is entirely unique because it's the only religion that says if you want to be happy, the first mover is God and his son Jesus. Christ has made you his own. He has secured you, is utterly by grace. He has given you life. He has given you forgiveness. He has given you a new family. He's adopted you. He has made you his own. He's given you a sense of worth and value, a purpose and mission in life. And Christ has done that first, and then you respond and live out of that. That's why Christianity is different. It's all about grace. It's all about God being the first mover to save and to love and to change you. So when you go off the starting line, go off in humility, Know that it is catapulted by grace because Jesus moves first and owns you. But then thirdly, you have to make this deeply personal. There's a, a deeply personal ownership. You have to, that's what Paul says, I make it my own. Now, Martin Luther has been known to be very famous for several things, but one of the things he has done is to show how the gospel is exceptionally powerful because of the personal pronouns. He says Christianity is all about the personal pronouns. You know, so what he means by this is that the Christian faith is a matter of personal possession. And you read Scripture, and if you want to get the most out of Scripture, one way to do this when you read the Bible is to understand the power of the personal pronoun because it denotes a sense of ownership, a sense of identity, the richest personal pronouns in the Bible, they talk about ownership between God and his people. We belong to God. God belongs to us. We are his people. He is 
our God. Jesus is our Savior. Christ is my Lord. God's people are His inheritance, and God is our inheritance. In fact, Martin Luther has said, read with great emphasis the words me, for me, and our. Accustom yourself to accept and apply to yourself this me and my and I with personal faith. Because the words our and us and for us ought to be written in golden letters because the man who did not believe in the personal pronoun is not really a Christian because he could always say that Jesus has died for you and Jesus is important for you and he has validated you. But only when the spirit hits your heart and the penny drops and you take a turn and all of a sudden a light bulb comes on and all of a sudden you realize that the gospel truth is not just for you, you, and you, but then it is for me and is mine and I believe in this. And Paul says, you have to make this personal. He says, Christ has made me his own because I have made and held on to Jesus as my own. And that's how you begin the Christian life in everything that you do, every business adventure, every school, every education, every relationship. If you go off the starting line and say, I'm going to do this and realize I'm going to begin every relationship, say, I'm not perfect. I'm not there yet. I haven't obtained it. I'm going to realize that I live this life by grace that Jesus owned me, and I made it personal to myself. You're going to start off this life well. You're going to start off this race well. But this leads us to our second point. Really quickly, how do you run this race? Well, verses 13 and 14 sort of get at the heart of this. 13 and 14 are basically more emphatic about verse 12 and bring more clarity to verse 12. But let's read verses 13 and 14 together because this is what Paul says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. There's just one thing about how to run this race, and it's pretty, pretty simple and pretty it's pretty much common sense. You know, if you ever ran a race, no one runs a race by keep looking over their shoulder, right? When, they, when you see the Olympics, when you see the track meets at school, everyone's focused ahead. You never look behind. And that's what Paul is really saying. When you live this life, forget the past. Now, let me qualify this pastorally because some of you may be thinking, wait a second, I thought we're supposed to learn lessons from the past. Don't I have to cherish the memories of the past? And that's absolutely correct. So we have to talk about this because Paul is not advocating for a sense of spiritual amnesia. He's not saying forget everything in the past. What he's basically getting at is this. All your biggest failures in your past, all your biggest accomplishments, of course remember them. But realize they don't have to have the most and biggest impact and importance in your life. Let me try to unpack what I mean. Paul doesn't forget everything. He remembers the past, and sometimes he even commands the church to remember the past. Even in verses 4 to 6, he tells about his personal past. I was a tribe of Benjamin. I, was, I studied under Gamaliel. And in 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul remembers all his hard work that he did as an apostle and as a pastor. 2 Corinthians 11, he even recalls and remembers all the beatings he has and all the torture that he went through and all the suffering that he went through. So Paul remembers the past. Even to remember the gospel, Jesus and his death and resurrection happened in the past. So certainly you have to remember the past. 
he's not forgetting everything. He's not calling us to spiritual amnesia. What Paul is saying is that the Christian life is not just fixed on the past. That means your greatest failures, your greatest sins, but also your greatest accomplishments in your past, they shouldn't have so much importance in your life today. Now let's veer off a little bit for a, a slight counseling point. One way that you could tell that you're growing and running the race and healing, that you're progressing in this race, is if in the hard moments of your past, you could talk about it, but you could still move forward. Some of you have failures. Some of you have sins. Some of you have been hurt. Some of you have regrets. And the past has eaten you up so much that you can't move forward in life. And you'll never get healing. You'll never finish the race. You'll never run well. Because the past has really grounded you. The past has push, put brakes on you. And if there's ever mistakes, if there's ever hurt and pain, Paul's not saying forget that because you have to process that. But he's saying if you're so enamored and so taken aback and so handcuffed by your past, then there's a problem there. And what Paul is trying to tell you here is that, yes, you can remember the past, but you have to process the past so you can move forward in this race. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this one famous pastor, as once said in his many years of ministry, the problem he had in his entire life pastoring a church, he says, those members who are miserable in his church usually were those who were suffering from spiritual depression because they couldn't move on from their past, either because of some sort of particular sin or some sort of big catastrophic failure. I would say, he writes, that in my experience in the ministry extending now many over year, many years, there is no more common difficulty than overcoming your past. It is constantly reoccurring, and I think I have to deal with more people over this particular thing than anything else. Friends, I am positive if you are thinking about your past, you have regrets, you have failures. Some of you, I know, also have trauma. Do you know what trauma is? Trauma is a life-threatening situation that has happened in the past, years in the past, maybe decades in the past, but it has the same profound effect in the present that makes you anxious, you can't sleep at night, that dictates your thoughts and your heart and your money and your friends and your relationship. Trauma is a life-threatening situation that happened in the past and has been done away with, but it has continued powerful, if not more powerful, effects in the present. And one way that we can run the race is to get through this, not by forgetting the past. It's not spiritual amnesia that Paul says, but what he says is actually spiritual transformation. In other words, to get through your past, your failures, your sins, Paul is not saying that it's going to be spiritual amnesia. It's not going to be memory erasure. It's going to be memory redemption. To look back in your past and to reinterpret it in the light of the gospel to see that in those moments of difficulty, those regrets and failures, God was there. He was using it. You may not have felt him when it actually happened, but now you can look back because of the Spirit and Scripture to not forget your past, but actually to redeem your past. Not to have memory erasure of the past, but memory redemption of the past. To be able to pray about it, process it, to reinterpret your past in light of Scripture so that you continue to move forward in this race. That is what Paul is saying not saying forget the past. He's saying that the past failures and sins and accomplishments and celebrations, as good as they are, are with you. 
but they don't have the same sort of profound effect. In fact, the word there that says forget is really basically means don't care about it so much, both your achievements and your failures. Because the mature way to live this life, according to Paul, because he says if you're mature in thinking, do this. Press on in the race. Move forward. You may be sprinting in this life, but some of you are so crippled that maybe pressing on faithfully just, te- just means for you one simple step forward, inching along, and that's all that God expects of you, that you press on forward with all your might in the grace of Jesus. But do you know when Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, straining towards the future, pressing towards the prize, do you know grammatically in those verses, they are all present tense verbs. So what Paul is saying is that, yes, you have to heal from the past, but also don't let your successes make you big-headed in the, in the, in the present-day moment. But he's saying that you could process the past, redeem the past, but your primary goal is to press on present tense in the moment, in the everyday aspects of your lives, in the everyday decisions, and everyday things that you have to do. You press on and don't let anything hold you back. Kind of silly... <laughs> You know, I, believe it or not, I was once on a track team. It was in the fifth grade, Westminster Elementary. Not Westminster, I'm at the seminary. West Dover Elementary School in New Jersey. And I was at the track meet, my one and only time of running professionally. <laughs> four-man relay race. And if you know the four-man relay race, they put the best runners as the first leg and then the last leg. So, of course, they put me on the second leg. <laughs> So I was a second leg, and I remember running in a fall day in New Jersey. It was cold. It was windy, and I was a little bit under the weather. I was running the second leg, and I was congested. So I had all this snot in my nose, and I had to do my part. So you run the four-man relay race, and of course, we're not that great. So the one racer kicks off really well. is in first place. I'm the second leg, so I'm running. I get the, I get the baton, and I'm running. And I said, nothing's going to stop me so I could hand it to the third. I got to keep first place. I got to keep first place. Well, all of a sudden, like, this, all this, like, snot, you know, my congestion in the face, it started running down my face. I was, like, kind of eating it, went into my mouth. I was like, forget this. I'm going to focus on this. So I took it. I just I kept throwing it behind me like this. Like, I, maybe it'll hit somebody else. I was just throwing it. Like, nothing's going to stop me. You're going to press on so I can hand it to the third person. As silly as that is, that is a race, and that's what Paul is saying. You know, the people of Philippi, you know, they, it was south of Philippi where the Olympics started. They knew about races. And in a silly example, you're going to have a lot of snot in your life. They're going to blind you. They're going to be a discomfort. They're going to hold you back. But Paul is saying, don't let anything hold you back for pressing on by being faithful to Jesus. Some of you are called to sprint. Because you're flying in life. Everything's going well. You love Jesus and you feel God's pleasure. Others of you are still processing the pain and trauma of your past, so you just take an inch forward. Either way, you're putting that aside. You're throwing it to the side because you're pressing on. And that's what the Apostle Paul says. Dennis Johnson, this commentator, said it this way. He said, the point about pressing on is not about frenetic activity. He says, not about which activities, but why you do the activities. There's many different track races. People are running this race in different races, in different stadiums. Sometimes you're running the race of a mom. Sometimes you're running the race of a student, of a teacher, an engineer, a father, a child, somebody healing, somebody going through counseling, somebody going through bullying in school. 
you run this race and you try the best by the grace of Jesus because you throw the snot of your life aside. You're pressing on in the present tense moments of your life. The significance is not the activity as much as the gospel instilling a purpose in the way that you run in the everyday matters of your life. And that's how you run, forgetting the past and pressing on. And this leads us finally and quickly to our last point, the prize. So Paul says when you start this race, start off with a humility. Say, I'm not perfect. Realize the race starts by grace and that Christ owns you to make that personal. When you run the race, forget the past, move on and press on in the moment. But the prize here is something wonderful. We all love prizes, friends. In 1923, this famous competing track teams of Scotland and France, the two countries were tied. They were neck and neck in the races. And on one of the last races, the 440, the runners were racing down shoulder to shoulder, making the first turn, and one of the runners pushed to the ground and off the track, and he fell. He was down, and then he came back up 20 meters behind the leading runner. And as hard as he could, he kicked his knees high. He held his head back, and he's flying down this track, towards the finish line, and he emerged as a winner. He wanted that prize. This race was memorialized in the movie Chariots of Fire that we all know. He ran the race, and he felt God's pleasure, and he won the prize. And the question that I'm I'm here to ask you, when you're living this life, what is your prize? Let's talk about that. What is your prize? Is it fame? Is that your goal? You're You're pushing all your energy, all your money, all your time. Family is second place. Your energy is second place. Health is second place because you want success, accomplishments, glory. Well, I mentioned this, but there's a prize here that actually is better than any other prize you could have. Some of you are running for the prize of love, prize of success, prize of money. Some of you are running for the prize of uh, autonomy and freedom and, cover, and, and comfort. Some of you are running for the prize of self-discovery. You know, all these things are really good, but there's one prize that's better than everything and actually will make all those other things I just mentioned a little bit better in your life. You have to run for the right prize, and verse 14 tells us this. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He says the greatest prize that you could run is following the call of God and having a relationship in Jesus. See, friends, every one of you, you and I, are running for something, and there's a prize that we're going after. We're made to worship, remember? We're made for eternity. We're made for something bigger than ourselves. No one lives for themselves, really. You live for something greater than yourself. Now, if you live for money, yeah, it's for yourself, but you're really running for the prize of money. If you're really running for success, really running for children, running for approval of parents. You know, all these things are really good, so let's talk about that. How do I make sense of this? Well, I think one way to make sense of this is like, it's not just to say I'm running for God's glory and I care about nothing else. No, the the way to make sense of this is really that brilliant theologian, St. Augustine, who says the essence of sin is a disordered love. Disordered love. Because he says it's okay to love everything. It is. You can love money. You can love your kids. You can love your parents' approval. You can love success, love getting straight A's, love having a nice house and good vacation. You can love all that. In fact, you should because God created it and said it's really good. But the essence of sin is not that you love the wrong things. The essence of sin is that you love the right things in the wrong order. Does that make sense? Disordered love means that we often love the less important things more than they should, and we don't love the more important things like God and Jesus in their proper place. 
And that's why when you live life in a disordered love, that's why relationships and your life and the race implodes. Because when you're called to love Jesus first, and then money and family and success second, life will cohere. But when you live and you run the race to win the prize of money first, and you love that the best, then you're going to do everything to get money. You're going to sacrifice your health, your identity, your relationships, your holiness, your obedience before God, because you're going to compromise and break everything in order to get money. If you love relationships and love marriage and love love the most and romance the most, you're going to break all kinds of laws and you're going to sacrifice all kinds of relationships in order to get a boyfriend or girlfriend or get engaged. It's not wrong to love relationships, but it shouldn't be more than God because the essence of sin is about a disordered love. And the only way that you could have self-coherence the only way that you can have everything right in the proper place where you thrive in life, where you can love everything generally and authentically and real, is if you order rightly all the things in your life. And Paul is saying, when you run this race, don't run it to win the prize of money, power, fame, love. Run it to win the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because when you love God first, then it allows you to use money in the way it's designed and your life will thrive. If you love God first, then it'll let you use your relationships and your parents and your children and your family, your words, your time, your job, your financial resources, your physical possessions, your gifts and service. You love God first, and that trickles down to everything else so that you use things in their proper place. Then and only then your life will begin to thrive. See, our problem isn't necessarily that we love the wrong things. It's that we often love the right things in the wrong order. And that's what Paul is saying. Run this rice, press on to the goal of the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That's our goal. That's our prize. Want to know specifically what that really is? Well, I think C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory captures this. He says the upper call in Christ Jesus. I think this is what it means. Basically five things. First, we shall be with Christ. Secondly, we shall be like Christ. Thirdly, we shall have and share in the glory of Christ. Fourthly, we will be entertained and have be fed in the kingdom of Christ. And then fifthly, we shall have some sort of official position in the universe because of Christ. Everything that he lists there is what we're scrambling for in this world, a position in the universe, but we're trying to get a position here in corporate America. We're trying to have relationships and family, but he says, you are forever my own because we will be with Christ. You want to be a somebody. You want to be beautiful. You want to be competent. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you just like me, the Savior of the world. And he says, run for that race. Run for that goal. Love that the most. Because the beauty of this race, friends, is that you don't have to be first in order to get the prize. You just have to finish because somebody already is first. Jesus Christ, who ran ahead before you, he was the gold medalist. He was the first place winner. He ran this race ahead of you to blaze a trail. We're just following his tracks. He made it easy for us. That's why Hebrews 12, 1 to, 10, 1 to 2 says, Therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside <clears throat> every weight, and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus has ran this race for you, and by our union with him, we are able to run the race that he has set before us to the glory of his name. And I pray that we would run well, friends. Let's turn to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much because you have given us your word. And you call us to live this life in a way that glorifies you by the grace that you've given us in your Son and to navigate the complexity of this world as we run this race called life. We pray that we do so in a way that brings you honor and glory as you are changed and transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for this time and pray that you may bless our church. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.